Titus chapter 2, please, this evening. Returning tonight to our time in the pastorals after several weeks off over the holidays. And I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter, but it will not be our portion this evening. But again, we've been away from it for several weeks, so let's go ahead and stand. Titus chapter 2 and verse number 1, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience, The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works." These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as a church body we would, as always, listen to your words carefully, contemplate them deeply, desire to obey them earnestly, that we would be in conduct as you would have us to be. And I pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated this evening. Well, chronologically, Titus is the second of the pastorals. Paul wrote First Timothy, then he probably wrote Titus, then he probably wrote Second Timothy, which, of course, is the last book that he wrote. And we will soon enough turn our attention to that. The thing that is at the front of his mind in the book of Titus with reference to the practice of the pulpit is to, if I can put it this way, to lay upon the congregation their responsibility to do good works. Good works, good works, good works, good works. 
Those good works might be things like teaching a Sunday school class. They might be things like cutting the neighbor's lawn. But for the most part, the good works that he has in mind, he has enumerated, particularly in chapter number 2. Titus is to speak about things that are appropriate to sound doctrine, and then he is given a list of subjects. And for every here's what you should do instruction found in chapter 2, there is an explanation of why one should do it. So that if, for instance, you read the instruction in chapter 2, chapter, I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, okay? At the end of verse number 5, you're given an explanation for why. Why should aged men and aged women, people, why should they do these things? Verse number 5, that the word of God be not blasphemed so that our bad works do not become an occasion for people to talk against God. And then in verses 6 and 7, you have similar instructions to young men. Do these things. Do these things. And then in verse number 8, you have an explanation for why. Why should I do those things? Verse number 8, so that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say about you. In other words, he cannot find any discrepancy between what you say you believe and how you live. That's the idea, right? Not that everybody's going to love you because you love Jesus, but that as he's looking for a weakness in the practice of your Christianity, he cannot find one because you're doing the things that God has instructed. And then in verses 9 and 10, you have instructions to servants which follow along the same lines. There are not radical differences in any of the demographics Everybody is to have their right mind. Everybody is to be obedient to the authorities over them. Everybody is to kind of speak, to, if I could put it this way, to stay in their lane with reference to their demographic. Men and women are not the same, not ever to God. And so he doesn't require the same things of us. Um, And so good works for men are going to be a little bit different than good works for women. And good works for masters are going to be different than good works for servants. But everybody is to do them. And again, in verse number 10, you have then the explanation of why. So here's what to do, and here's why to do it. And we always keep coming back to the same reason of why to do it. Because we never want to do anything to make God look bad. That's the logic. You don't want to do anything to make God look bad. You don't want to give anybody opportunity to talk badly about the Lord. You don't want his word criticized by our conduct. And so verse number 10, not purloining, showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. So up through verse number 10, we have this pattern. Do these things, and here's why you should do these things. Do these things, and here's why you should do these things. Do these things, and here's why you should do these things. And then in verse number 11, we have this kind of foundation that Paul is going to develop. And if you look carefully, don't do it now, but do it later, you'll notice that our English version does what we believe is in the Greek translation properly, and that is that verse 11, 12, 13, and 14 are one sentence. And if you look at the punctuation in your Bible, you will discover that it is all one sentence. Verse 11, 12, 13, and 14 all fits together. And this is the how 
if I could put it that way. Right? You have the what, do these things. We have the why, because you don't want to make God look bad. You want to, you want to dress up God's doctrine in appropriate conduct. And here's how. Verse number 11. And the how is the grace of God. How do God's people live as Christians in a world that is not Christian? How do we live in a way that honors the Lord in a world that has no interest in honoring the Lord? And the answer is God's grace. In verse number 11 then, Paul tells us about the epiphany of grace. Verse number 11 For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And the reason that I put epiphany is because the Greek word appeared is the verb form of the word. Epiphany. Epiphany is a Greek word. Brought to light. Made visible. God's grace. God's grace appeared. And of course, we understand that God's grace is his goodwill and his kindness. It is his divine enablement. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And Paul said that he did not frustrate God's grace. That as God in his graciousness is trying to do something in the life of Paul, Paul is compliant, not rebellious. It is God's grace. It is something that God directs toward the unclean and the unworthy, not those who merit it. So God's grace that brings salvation. And of course we all understand that the basis of our salvation is God's grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. That in the absolute kindness of God, he is willing to justify not the righteous, but the ungodly. This is an act of God's grace. And the requirement is simply to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For grace are you saved through faith. And God even gives us the faith. And if you look at chapter 3 and verse number 4. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. But according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Which he shed on us abundantly. Through Jesus Christ our Savior being justified By his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I was reading a sermon this morning on 2 Corinthians 8, and the pastor said, it was a great point, God is always more generous than we are. God is always more generous than we are. Paul talks to us then about the epiphany of God's grace. And how did God's grace appear? And I would suggest to you that it appeared two ways to us. First of all, the Gospel of John is very clear that grace appeared when Christ appeared. 
Jesus Christ is the physical embodiment of God's grace to us. He is our Savior. He is the human being who will bear all of our guilt and sin. He is the human being who will take all of God's wrath for us. Every spanking that we have ever deserved, he will carry. He is God's grace. But of course, we don't all see Jesus Christ. So that brings me to the second way that the grace of God appears, and that is when the gospel is proclaimed. And the Bible bears testimony to this. Let me just read you a couple of verses. You can turn to them quickly if you want. But Acts chapter 14 and verse number 3, uh, the Bible tells us, Long time therefore abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace. Unto the word of his grace. Or Acts chapter 20 and verse number 32, Paul writes, Now, brethren, I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. So the grace of God has appeared. There has been an epiphany of grace. And you have been the recipient of it as if I, the Bible, has come to us. And it is his abundance kindness. God has given us the gift of faith and we believe it. And it is the grace that brings salvation. Secondly, Paul tells us about the education of grace. <clears throat> For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So that grace has appeared. There has been an epiphany of grace. We have seen it. We have received it. And it comes with an instruction. The gift of God, the grace of God teaches us. And that is the word that gives to us the idea of pedagogy. The entire philosophy and system of education, pedagogy. How to teach, what to teach, how to teach what you're going to teach what the curriculum ought to be. And it teaches us, in verse number 12 there, it teaches us that, and that is the little word that means purpose. In other words, Paul is not explaining to us the content of the instruction. I would propose to you that the content of the instruction is verses 1 through 10. What you have in verse number 12 is the purpose of the instruction. What does God want from us? What does God want from you? You know, when we're young people, those are really big questions. People that are in tune with the Lord, that are trying to do what the Lord wants, they want to know what the Lord wants from them. Well, here it is. Here's here's what the Lord's purpose for your life is. It's found right here in Titus 2.12. Teaching us to this purpose. Teaching us in order that these would be the products of our lives. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. This is what God has for everybody 
This is his instruction. Now, I made mention of this this morning in the message that I would spend a little more time on this this evening. All right, we want to think about this kind of instruction properly. God's chastening is not simply him yelling at us because we're doing it wrong. God's chastening includes repetitive instruction in how to do it properly. The way that any teacher would teach a classroom, the way that you would, I'm assuming, have instructed your children or be instructing your children. Pick your clothes up, put them away. Pick your toys up, put them away. Very few of us as parents have given those kinds of instructions once and been done. We give those instructions repeatedly. Sometimes those instructions are accompanied with rebuke. But it's all part of the instruction. It's all part of the pedagogy. Here's what to do. Here's what to do. Here's what to do. Think about it this way, folks, because I'm, I'm really trying to, be, I'm trying to be helpful to us. Athletes. <clears throat> Athletes are very concerned about muscle memory. I'm supposing musicians are too. That you do a task often enough, often enough, that your skills improve and your speed improves, and you can do that thing without thinking. There was a lady, we, and of course in Hammond it was a big church, and, but we had, the, we had the same lady played the organ every service. That was cool, right? Big organ, Mrs. Colson played the organ, great. What was really impressive was that Mrs. Colson could play the organ And those of you that went there know I'm not lying. Mrs. Colson could play the organ while having a conversation with a half a dozen young ladies. They'd all be crowded around the organ talking to her. She'd be talking away, playing the organ, you know, going a mile a minute, going to beat the band. You don't just do that one day. Now, here's what I'm getting at, folks. Sometimes we do things as Christians, right? And we wonder, is my heart really in this? I just do it. Let me ask you a question. I'm not trying to be stupid, but I'll be stupid for a minute. Is your heart in walking? Or do you just walk? You've learned to walk. You've got to go somewhere. Now it's a part of your nature. You just get up and go. You've got to walk. Right? Part of the goal is for acting like a Christian is such a part of our nature, such a part of our conduct, that we do it to some extent without having to sort through. And in fact, I would suggest to you that those Christians who every time something comes up, they have to filter through what their possible options are, those are the people who, generally speaking, don't do very well. Probably none of us would be very comfortable as we're laying on the operating table waiting to have a surgery, and we say to the doctor, how many of these have you done? And he says, oh, I've never done this before. But I think I can handle it. We would say, well, think you can handle it somewhere else. We would like somebody who has some skills. So the grace of God is instructing us, regularly instructing us, to think and orient ourselves in this life in a certain way so that we do these things kind of by default. It doesn't mean that we do them without emotion or without heart or without regard to God. We do them because this is what we do. 
So you'll notice in verse number 12 that the grace of God has as its goal both a negative and a positive. Here's the purpose. The grace of God that appeared, had an epiphany, is an educator. So here's what we need to do. Don't do these things. Deny ungodliness. And the idea there is things that are irreverent, that are unworthy of the Lord. And deny things that are worldly, that are of this present age. And I think you need to think of that word worldly in its broadest, most sinful connotation. Not just simply that exist in this world, but are oriented to this world in the wrong way as opposed to being oriented to God. And there are all kinds of appetites for this, folks. Deny ungodly and worldly lusts, their desires. And since we live in a world that doesn't know the Lord, we live in a world that is constantly looking to give itself over to those lusts. So it promotes them, and it celebrates them, and it endorses them. And then there is a positive dimension that we are to live soberly, righteously, and godly. That word sober we've seen. We've seen it in chapter 1 and verse number 8. Be sober. Have your mind right. We see it in 2.2 in the word temperate. We see it in 2.4 in the word sober. We see it in chapter 2 and verse number 5, discreet. Several English words, one Greek word, always the same meaning. Be in your right mind. And of course, all we need to do then is run to the book of Philippians and we know where to find the right mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then there is the way that is right. To live soberly in the right mind, righteously. It just simply means the way that is right. In in Titus chapter 1 at verse number 8, it is translated just. To do those things that are right. Not to be a criminal. Not to be a crook. Not to be a liar. Not to be a deceiver. Not to be a manipulator. To do things that are right. Right as God counts right. This is what God's grace has as its goal. And finally then godly. Godly being I think set in opposition to ungodliness. Godly, reverential, being oriented towards him. This is the way Paul runs us always through Romans, or always, of course, Romans 14 is unchanging. But this is the way Paul orients us to things about which we would differ in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, to the Lord, oriented to the Lord. And this is to be done, folks, verse number 12, in this present world. In other words, we do not get to be Christians simply in our minds. We do not get to be Christians simply in our conveniences. We are to live in this present age. 
being instructed by God's grace because it has made itself known to us. And that brings me finally in verses 13 and 14 to the expectation of grace. Live godly and righteously in this present world. But verse 13, looking for that blessed hope. And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. That he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. There it is again. Zealous of good works. So here we are. God's grace has appeared to us and God has gifted us faith and we responded to his grace by believing on his son. Now there is a way to live right here, right now. But we are not simply living in this place and for this place. We are looking for the next one. We are looking for our blessed hope. And I would not fight you about this, but the little conjunction and there in verse number 13, looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ easily carries the idea not only of and in making a distinction, but even as in bringing a similarity, and I think he's making that point. Not that God is going to appear and then Jesus is going to appear, but that Jesus is the God who is our Savior. We are looking for his appearing. This is something we, of course, know 1 Thessalonians deals with. Every one of the chapters ends with the Lord's return. Paul talks to the Corinthians about the appearing of the Lord. We're waiting on his son from heaven. And here it is in the book of Titus that we are living right now in a particular way even though we are looking elsewhere. We are looking for the Savior who gave himself for us. And he redeemed us. He bought us back. He purchased us out of a world of iniquity. And iniquity, folks, is one of the Bible words for sin, and it almost always includes the idea of us doing what we want. I think that you could put it in contrast in verse number to verse number 12 to ungodliness and worldly lusts. I have ungodly lusts. I have selfish desires. Not all of them. I'm not saying that we're all loaded down with sexual lust. That's the way we think of the word. But we're, we're, we're just by nature as unregenerated human beings. We are filled with desires that are all about us. Christ bought us out of that. He bought us out of living for us. In fact, Paul said to the Corinthians that since we got saved, we're never allowed to live for ourselves again, but to him that died for us. So he redeemed us from all iniquity. 
and he purified us to himself so that we are his special people. You know, a number of years ago, we had a family visit. They ended up joining. They were very active in the church for a number of years. They were good, faithful people. If I told you their name, you would know exactly who I'm talking about. When my wife and I first went over to visit them and sat in their living room, he asked me this question. It's the only time I've ever been asked the question, and it really threw me for a loop. He said, what's different about Westwood Heights? What's different about Westwood Heights? How is it different from the other independent Baptist churches? What's different about Christians? What's different about us? And here's what's different about us, folks. Are you ready for this? Here's what's supposed to be different about us. We're clean. We're clean. In a world that is dirty, we're clean. That's what the text says. Purify us. Any person with a Jewish background reading this would immediately go to the world of washing and the ritualistic washing of items for their ceremonial cleanness. What's different about us? We're clean. That's what's supposed to be different about us. This is what makes us special. I mean, seriously, folks, God, right, it's, it's not like... <clears throat> It's not like God has assembled a brain trust, which is how they described Roosevelt's closest advisors, right? The brain trust, the dollar a year men, the titans of industry and who could afford to work for a government pittance to help the country through the Depression. Or Kennedy's counselors, the best and the brightest, it's not like God went around the world, folks, and handpicked the best so that we form some kind of elite. We are the special forces of the world. We are God's unique warriors. It's not anything like that. What makes us different is this we're clean. We're clean. We're undefiled. We're not dirty. This is what Christ has done for us. This is, right? I mean, we understand this, do we not, folks? This is how we're going to spend eternity. We're going to spend eternity clean. Incorruptible. There will be no government scandals during the kingdom because nobody that works for the government can be bought or sold or corrupted. They cannot lie, they cannot dissemble, they cannot deceive, they cannot cheat. They're clean. So Christ gave himself for us so that he might redeem us, buy us back out of all of our iniquities, all of our appetites to live for ourselves and to wash us and make us clean to his satisfaction. And be zealous of good works. <clears throat> that we, this is what we really desire. Not that we be grudgingly, I don't really want to do it, 
but I'm being forced to do it, and somebody's making me do it, and one of these days I'm going to grow up and nobody's going to make me ever do anything again. That's what we all said when I was a kid, right? That was the mantra of every 17-year-old. I'm going to graduate high school, I'm going to get an apartment, and nobody's ever going to tell me what to do again until I get a job and buy a car and a house. And then the world is filled with people who tell us what to do. Well, it's different. Yeah, I know. Zealous of good works. And that brings me then to the conclusion at this part, right, it's of, of where we are, verse number 15 is a new sentence that really is going to continue on in chapter 3. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. And so there's a word of instruction to the pastor. Verses 11 through 14 has been to the people. Right? I mean, in verse number one, right? Here's what you need to speak. You need to speak things that put them in mind, right? That, that are appropriate to sound doctrine. Here's sound doctrine. It's not all Latin, right? It's not soteriology and eschatology. It is be in your right mind. Do the right things. Conduct yourself according to your age and according to your gender properly. This is the right doctrine. Don't make God look bad. And this is because God's grace has saved you and has given you this instruction. And this instruction comes, of course, through Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of all God's kindnesses to us, and it comes to us then through the Bible. And then verse 15 Another word to the pastor. Pastor, teach this. These things speak. Say them. Tell them to the people. Here's how we're to live. Here's how we're to live. Exhort them. People, you really need to live this way. You really need to take this to heart. Don't blow this off. This is important. You may think where you're going to live and how you're going to live and what kind of house you're going to live in is really important, but what's really important is the way you live. You really need to listen. Rebuke with all authority because we live in a sinful world and there will always be people who want to bring sinful philosophies into the picture. And those need to be corrected and rebuked. And you are to do this, pastor, with all authority, which I would not understand to be meanness or unkindness, but to do this with the authority that is backed up by the Scripture and to be in no way intimidated by those who would oppose it. Let no man despise thee. Let no negative reception, which is something that Paul is going to deal with extensively in 2 Timothy. What is the church to do when people go, well, we don't want to hear that. We would like to hear something else. And here we have it in a nutshell. Speak these things. Exhort people to live this way. Do it with the authority that comes from the Scripture. And don't be intimidated by those who are in opposition. I would just remind us... 
of Titus chapter 1 and verse number 3. But hath in due times, God has done this, hath in due times manifested his word through preaching. God makes his voice heard by the proclamation of the Bible. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that that I would receive the instruction and live it as the pastor ought to, and that we would hear the instruction and live it. And thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for a body of believers who are very committed to living out your words, who, who take them to heart and take them seriously. And I pray your greatest blessings upon the lives of these, your people. You have redeemed us with your blood, cleansed us with your righteous blood. May we live accordingly in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me make a